Night Stars, Joe Flynn, Cameron Mitchell, Elsa Lanchester, Verna Klemperer, Pernell Roberts, and Susan Oliver. This is podcast 114, the immediate follow-up to Return to Form, and is therefore really number two in a new story arc, the arc which has begun after the long pausa when we were not up on iTunes. But now we're back, and I've had a new thought, which means a great deal to me, and I'd like to try to present that thought in a way that is as... um, personal and direct and simply a shared experience, but also I think um, I feel it has meaning. I feel it has some some carry, some implications, and I hope you'll see it that way, and I hope you'll hear it that way. The uh, introduction is something you probably haven't heard for many years. It certainly um, brings a smile to me. It's the musical introduction to the show from the 1970s that was entitled Rod Serling's Night Gallery. And it ran, I think, three seasons and uh, was a showcase for scripts that had been written by Serling, although he didn't produce or direct any of them. And he would give the little introductions uh, before each uh, little sketch. And um, It really wasn't a very good show, looking back on it now. All the photography is that kind of washed-out 70s television photography. It seemed to be done without a really deep feeling for atmosphere. Uh, And some episodes were standouts. John Badham worked on it, for example, but many others. And uh, a lot of talent went into it. But for me, the um, apex of the show, which, as I said, is not a high watermark, though it's all on – two of the seasons are out on DVD now – the um, power of it falls in the Serling scripts themselves. Now, remember, I've not done podcasts on Rod Serling, and I'd love to do them at some point, but Serling scripts, some of which are explicitly religious, fall into two basic sort of um, story arcs. One is the uh, bad man who meets his just desserts or his comeuppance in some terrible, repetitive, hellish uh world or dimension in which he must repeat the penalty to you, his terrible, insensitive, and cruel crimes forever and ever, and he comes to realize this, often in some highly unexpected manner. And the other scripts are ones usually of a sort of loser or a sort of a guy who's really been buffeted out to the sidelines of life, the, the, the unsuccessful loser with women and with work who gets a second chance. And there are many of those. And those tend to have a very strong resonance and feeling for Christian people, which I think are actually um, – w- w- is there. I mean, Serling actually brought the second person of the Trinity into at least four of his scripts in The Twilight Zone, if you listen, and critics can't stand that, but they're there. And whether it's Christian or not is not the point. What is the point? is that as I recently listened, saw a couple of these Serling scripts, I was reduced to an absolute fearful state of mind because I've been dealing in my own growth as a person with one particular character fault, 
fault and flaw comes out as flawed, um, which uh, has been uh, proven uh, incurable. There was an old uh, institution in Washington, D.C., which I assume has been um, demolished now, and probably a very modern building, and it was called the Home for the Incurables. And when I was first in the ministry in the Episcopal Church in Washington, I would visit. It would, what it was was sort of hospice care in its sort of early 20th century form where if you couldn't, there was no chance of your cure, you would go to something called the home for the incurables. And it was very touching, but there it was. You, you, you checked in with this stone lettering over you that said home for the incurables. Well, I would like to check into that place. I identify because there's one aspect of my own experience and it's really um, a form of fear, a form of terror. Uh, it's um, Nothing that I couldn't put on the front page of the New York Times, although it has all sorts of implications for my life. And I really am uh, not needing to talk about the whatever the etiology of it, whatever the, uh, the tributaries of it. It is basically a, f- a personality flaw by which I find it very, very uh, impossible to confront certain difficult situations. And my characteristic position is flight. You may be someone who has a kind of angry affect or uh, determination, and your characteristic sort of um, operant M.O. is to go towards the problem and to grapple with it. Mine is to flee a million, million yards, especially if it involves a strong um, uh, person of the opposite sex. I will run 10 trillion miles away. I'm a runner, as in Logan's Run. I'm a runner, and Francis is after me. I speak that as the Francis is the uh, guy who uh, who is um, goes off to kill anyone over 30 who's run because he doesn't want to be caught in the grand guignol ritual called last day. Well, I'm on the run in certain ways, and this sense of, of uh, fear is so deep, nothing's ever conquered it, nothing's ever succeeded. And I saw uh, nothing. Uh, a lot of other things have been changed. A lot of other things have been helped, but neither my religion nor therapy nor the highest forms of direction, meditation, and a really, really fine, wise, and enlightened, thoughtful, measured, uh, analytic care taken with these issues, and particularly this one. It has not budged. When push comes to shove, I am just absolutely a quivering bit of jelly before a certain kind of fear. Now, that's just the way it is. And I don't mean to say, oh, you know, he's just sticking his thumb in his mouth. I've really tried. I, maybe you have too. Maybe, you know, I've tried. Then when you think of the times I've tried, when you think of the times I've cried, I could honestly die. Well, that's me. And uh, as I wrestled with the inability of this particular rock to be come out of the system, this particular kidney stone to be destroyed uh, un, uh, or um, sent forth on its merry way down the tributary or um, demolished by laser surgery, it cannot be done. It's never been done, and I'm of an age that can tell you that it's, I've tried when I think of the... So um, when I was uh, watching, I gravitated in light of this thought recently uh, while we were on pausa because iTunes had us in the wrong file and we were off for two and a half weeks. Now we're back. I began to think about this in terms of Rod Serling and I thought, well, maybe his episodes of, of a kind of fate that is unendingly um, catches up with you might speak to me. So I turned on in the Night Gallery second series with that tremendous uh, little odd uh, musical intro you just heard, I turned on the one that I remembered so well from those days called 
Waiting Room. And in the Waiting Room episode, written by Serling and not edited or changed in a word, a gunslinger rides into town, and it's a dark night, and there's no one on the streets, and he rides into town and walks into the saloon, and there in the saloon, uh, there's a very famous um, actor we see um, behind the bar, and he says a whiskey, and he drinks a whiskey, and then he has a second, and then he notices in the corner there are five other uh, Western Types uh, gathered around playing a game of cards, and he sort of knows that they he, they seem to know who he is, and everybody seems to know who he is, and he sort of senses he knows who they are. And his name is Mister Dictor, and with the characteristic idiosyncrasy that a number of Rod Serling uh, scripts have, when he constantly repeats the full name of the author, like Captain Billings, or in this case, Mister Dictor, uh, it's an idiosyncrasy that an editor should have helped Rod Serling to. Uh, drop, but the word Mr. Dictor occurs with uh, defeating regularity too much. But at each hour, as the big clock over the mantelpiece bongs nine or bongs ten times, one of these men stands up and goes out, and that you hear a shot, or you hear a crowd, or you hear something, and it turns out that they're all there in a kind of hell or purgatory. These are all murderers of one sort or another who are having to revisit or re-experience their fate at a certain hour of the night, every night. And it's uh, an unending purgatory, or even the word hell comes up towards the end. And um, you have Buddy Ebsen there, who's a doctor, who did some terrible things as a doctor, and the church enters into that particular telling, and then you have another gunfighter and another killer, and whether they were lynched, whether they were hanged in a regular judicial process or whether they were killed by a waiting gunman or whether they committed suicide, each one of these um, men is uh, absolutely riveted by the fault of what they've done. And it is, uh, they say, finally, Buddy Epson says, when you take up violence, you, you, you end up being judged. And that is the end of it, and uh, you come to this place. And it has a horrifying ending in which there is absolutely not an iota or a scintilla of hope. Now, I saw The Waiting Room, and it occurred to me it's a kind of cosmic uh, worsening of my own parable here of uh, the inability to, to solve a problem. It's not, it's a victimless crime in many ways, although it victimizes all the people I love, my anxiety. It's a, is it a victimless crime? No. You know, nothing is victimless because you relate to other people. To say, to say that it would be such a thing would be false and a f- self-righteous form of, uh, of justified innocence. Absolutely not. Terror uh, creates um, an avoidance, uh, creates a tremendous uh, eddies uh, and waves all around you in a million different ways and it creates all sorts of false understandings of who you are that other people receive meekness and kindness is actually when it is coming from fear and terror can in fact be um, spinelessness and a lack of courage that can really defeat an institution and certainly defeat me not to mention a family so I'm keenly aware of it and I uh, saw this uh, thing and I thought to myself you know this um, this is me and I had a kind of as I think I've already said I had a kind of turning at this point because 
I realized, you know, karma is something that has to be stopped. Let's just call karma judgment. Let's just call karma something you take in. You, a lot of things in your life you can get control over. You can get control over aspects of your diet. Remember young Watson and young Sherlock Holmes. You, can, you could get control of all sorts of aspects of anger, bitterness, resentment, frustration, the need to control other people, the need to hyperactivate over other people, the need to, to constantly dwell on things, all sorts of repetitions and repetition compulsions. But there's bound to be one or two things, at least in my case, they're so early in their development that they're like they're part of me. They're like that alien presence that I talked about from alien um, uh, John Hurt. That's the actor. I just remembered uh, with the alien presence inside him that finally comes out. These things are part of us very often, not always, but partly uh, Citizen Kane. They're part of us. And they, as Jesus said, this one cometh out not by, you know, uh, a lot of tricks and a lot of stamping of the feet. They come out only by prayer. In other words, only God. There is a religious answer only. I was thinking of Signs, that wonderful movie with uh, Gibson, you know, uh, when he plays the Episcopal priest who's lost his faith because of the death of his wife. And then some things happen at the end, and he uh, he puts his collar back on, and the movie ends with such a positive... Uh, the cross is back up on the wall, and he's wearing his collar going off to serve a parish, and there's something so powerful. But at the end of it, they're talking about the defeat of the aliens, and you hear the uh, voice of the announcer saying, throughout the world, the aliens were apparently defeated. It began in in North Africa, it says. It began in the northern part of Africa uh, or in the Middle East where a very ancient remedy proved to be the one. I assume it's some form of aspergion, some throwing of water because remember water was the thing that got the aliens, some form of holy water against the aliens. But um, an ancient remedy. Well, you know, this is what I want to say. I think the atonement of Christ is the only thing that miracle that alone could save us, or at least save me. And I've sort of come back to that. I said, well, you know, nothing else has worked. And yet this is a natural for the kind of break in the purgatorial karma to come in this one area. Now, it's as if God can, God's love and God's being and God's allness and God's reality and God's inner creative elan vital and energy throughout the universe, the real thing that is already there, is actually present and can come into our conscious experience in a million new ways and fresh ways and banish an enormous amount of ignorance. But at least for me, there has been one thing sticking up that it couldn't. It was like the alien spaceship in the Tommyknockers by um, King, which is very good, where the the spaceship is about 300 feet below the ground with elevators. It's a vast, gigantic, like a metal plate that half the state of Maine, you almost might say, or a large section of the state of Maine. But all the farmer sees is this tiny little fin, maybe six inches sticking out of the ground. And But every time when the farmer plows that field, he or the horse trips over the six inches of fin, silvery fin that is sticking out of the ground, but actually it covers or something hundreds of yards in extent below and are surrounding him just a few inches below the ground. And that really is this thing for me, this uh, terror, this fear, this repulsion, this compulsion, this aversion that is uh, so powerful that it has a visceral quality and nothing has worked. And I said, you know, well, that's where the little edge of the atonement comes in. That's where, the, that's where Christianity has its great virtue. That's where it has its great vigor. That's the one thing needful. That's the one thing. Uh, Lam Gottes, uh, die, 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 die
the sins of the world, the sin of the world. This is the one thing, whether it's done to you or done from you, done out of you or done against you, whether inside it's out, it's irresistible in human terms and it's unchallengeable. And yet the one thing that had worked, it certainly worked in 1973 and it can work today. And I've had a real sense of new interest in the atonement. Now let's just talk for a minute about the atonement. And let's try to bring into this the doctrine of religious reserve. Now I've talked about night gallery. It's, see that. It'll, it's your worst nightmare. But there are a number of other scripts of, uh, of the Shadow Plays one in Twilight Zone. There are a number of other scripts of Serling's that have this thing. The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Is that what it's called? Or is it Color? Oh, I know. Uh, color Me Night, Paint Me Black, Paint Me Black, Color Me Night, uh, something like that. Uh, the one where the sun never rises in a town that's about to execute a man for a crime. Um, these eternal dark scenarios are really worth our seeing because they sort of give us a sense of the limits under which we are trying to heal ourselves and it can't be done. And then I talked about the return to atonement theology. Now, I don't want to say that it's a return to a particular theory of the atonement because Huxley and Hurd and a number of other critics were right when they said that if you pin down this remarkable action that Kerouac himself talked of and many other Christian theologians have talked of in such astounding personal felt terms, you run the risk of, 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 of putting markers around it that deny its essential uh, impassibility. It is beyond words because your problem is beyond words. I cannot say why my particular problem of anxiety is beyond cure, and yet it certainly has been beyond human cure thus far. So therefore, whatever would cure it would have to to be beyond my explanations. And so when we try to overly um, explain the atonement or the death of Christ, let's call it that, which did in fact occur historically, we have every reason to believe that, then, then, we, then we, 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 we're, we're, we're holding it down, to quote a Joe Meek song. We're holding it down, and that's, uh, that won't do. Something this big cannot be held down. You cannot do it. It'll slide out from under you. You can talk about the substitutionary or forensic theory of the atonement, and you can quote Anselm, and you can quote J.I. Packer, and you can quote um, um, the Neo-Puritans and uh, all sorts of famous people, and you do right to do them. They had a tremendous insight here, but you can't, strictly speaking, argue on the basis of a divine conversation by which the father's honor or the father's sort of uh, self-sense had to be somehow mollified or rectified in any sense without uh, getting yourself in all kinds of difficulties. Now, the people who argue that view do not regard God the Father in an anthropomorphic way, although John Milton, who's the best of them, came close to that in book four. But you, you don't want to do that, but, and I realize it doesn't do that. That simply says that what is perfect uh, has to coexist with that which is perfect in us. And there's a, there's a great bar. In my case, it was my particular problem, and in your case, it might be your particular problem. I'm talking in waiting room terms. I'm not talking about cosmic, theological, categorical terms. I'm talking in personal Rod Serling terms, me, you, him. And something has to happen. That, I'm convinced, something has to happen. So some kind of thing had to happen on the cross that could make it possible for me to break the spell of, a, of, of the chains I wrought in life and that perhaps were wrought in life before me and by others who lived prior to my life. Remember, you and I all, a lot of the kind of upbringing we had was determined by the upbringing that our parents had that was determined by 
by the upbringing that their parents had. There is something in the Bible called the sins of the fathers visited upon the children to the fourth and fifth generations. That is an f- empirical fact, and we see it again and again in Ibsen, you know, Ibsen. Just, just read Ibsen. And uh, so we have to, therefore, really reckon on that, uh, and therefore uh, there is something that has to happen. So let's say there is something that has to happen, but to pin it down overly much to a particular kind of reparative, retributive justice question is to, um, I'm a little reluctant to do it because then it becomes kind of a quantifiable chemical, like a, a chemical set uh, experiment. And, and then it's uh, how much liquid do you put in this vessel and how much do you put in that vessel and how do they exchange? I understand it, but it doesn't quite explain the inexplicability of my initial presenting problem. Or you could talk about Gustav Aulen, the famous uh, whoever that really was, and I've known about him forever, but it was all, you know, who, who is this guy that everybody thinks is so great? Uh, there was a Swedish... Uh, theologian who took on some views of other confessions in the church that said that really the atonement was not about a a retributive exchange but was rather about the victory of God over the devil using the sort of disguise of the sun on earth as a kind of hook to bait the devil who once hooked could not wriggle away and was then caught in a, a impossible situation in which God the Father destroyed him. And that has a lot of mythic sense, and I like it. I, I feel it's good, but I always feel good when I read the so-called Christus Victor theory for five minutes, and then it does nothing for the, the that little Tommyknocker, uh, six-inch bit of, uh, of of tail fin that hides a 600-yard craft that's under the field of my life that I'm plowing that's about 150 trillion times larger than I am personally. And so I need I need a miracle every day. I need something more than that because that's a kind of wonderful metaphor that may or may not be true. And then there are other views that the atonement was a way to deify man through the humanizing of God. And then you have this Alexandrian Christology, which elevates the deity of Jesus Christ, or the Antiochian, which makes him into an exemplar, a wonderful man. And then you have liberal exemplary theories of the atonement by which he's sacrificed on the cross is a very good thing. And indeed, I say, uh, again, I say amen, or it's a totally divine salvation, which again, I say amen, but I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see it somehow begin to actually pull up that huge craft, which, by the way, at the end of Tommyknockers, one man succeeds in doing. At the end of the Tommy Knockers by Stephen King, one man, one man, as the writer constantly says at the end, one man oddly and miraculously succeeds in bringing up that 600-yard spaceship with all its effluence and all its toxic fumes and takes it away from the earth and destroys it. It's a very powerful image. Well, something's got to deal with me, with my Tommyknocker spacecraft, which in my case is a form of fear, which cannot be extricated by a mental operation, whether it's retributive distributive, whether it's Anselmian, whether it's Abelardian, whether it's Antiochian, whether it's uh, Alexandrian, whether it's Christus Victor, whether it's the Orthodox, whether it's Neo-Puritan, whether it's this, whether it's that. Uh, even if it's the broader statement. What I do know is that he, like the man in the King novel, has to take away the sin of the world. He has to take away the sin of the world. Something's got to give. Something's got to give. And um, for me, it has to give. I mean, if it doesn't give, I'm going to be a character in the waiting room. I won't have murdered anybody, to my knowledge, thus far. 
I will not have done a number of things that the characters in these horrific Rod Serling parables do. But nevertheless, for me, it has functioned as the end, and an end that cannot be gotten rid of. It is, uh, I die with it, I've lived with it, I've always had it. A lot of other things have gone away, but that one thing, it's like a, it's like a piece of metal embedded in my body, and nothing short of an operation that would kill me in the taking it away. Because if it was taken away, it's like that lipoma I talked about. If they actually operated upon it, unslightly as it is, it's so enmeshed with other parts of my body that it would kill me. Unless you had some, I don't know, some medicine I've never heard of. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a medicine that we've never heard of. Okay, I'm going to conclude this piece by simply saying, um, let's have a little reserve here. Let's not uh, limit this. Let's not mark it out. Let's not call it one thing or another. I'm sure that all the theories of the atonement say something important. I've always been struck at the kind of power of the substitutive idea because I always knew instinctively that someone had to sort of crowd me out of my problem because I couldn't deal with it. I had to have sort of, you know, fireball XL5 commander, you know, Thunderbirds ago. I had to have um, I had to have Professor Van Helsing uh, sort of somehow shoulder me out, uh, uh, push me out of the place I stand. I have a, a wonderful, in the bathroom I keep a wonderful mummy, a marvelous rubber statue of the mummy. It's really well done. But the mummy itself is standing on a platform with some snakes, uh, pl- oh, it's all plastic snakes, and a, a pharaoh's head and some obvious Egyptian things. But you, the, the mummy is stuck in by two kind of little rubber kind of... Um, ends on his feet, little little pricks, uh, little levers on his feet, and you have to push them into rubber holes, and then he stands perfectly right. What, that's me, uh, surrounded by the snakes. I've got to have that person, uh, like I do when I sometimes do for fun, I've got to pull that mummy's body out, and I've got to put someone else there and let him do it. And if he can do it, then I'm saved. And if he can't, I'm not. And that's why we make such a thing about the perfection of Christ. Um, the the perfection of his divine nature in his uh, two-natured being as he died on the cross and said those remarkable things. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And into thy hands I commit my spirit. I give up. I'm giving to you no more resistance. And finally, um, why have you forsaken me? Why have you allowed me to deal with this thing all my life that you've never given me the tools to deal with? It's a, it's a, he identifies with me. He stands in my place. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He, he has forgiveness even on me. And uh, he finally uh, gives the whole thing over to God in whose um, stead he is somehow the spokesman. Or the word bearer. And the word giver, and I find that absolutely marvelous. So I conclude now with a very uh, well-known uh, American singer who recently received the um, was it the Congressional Medal of Freedom or was it the President's Medal of Honor? But I saw him receive it, and I thought to myself, "Golly, how little ego this man has!" But not so long ago, well, actually, a fair amount of time in our lives, he experienced this, and he um, committed a song to vinyl that I think is a perfect expression of the feeling I feel today. And I really do hope you'll have that feeling today, because that's the whole purpose of the podcast. And so here's number two in my new story arc. I was blinded by the devil, born and already ruined I stepped out of the womb By his grace I have been touched By his word I have been healed By his hand I've been delivered By his spirit I've been sealed I've been saved 